This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, a professor at Morgan State University sees today's black Americans as still living in the wake of slavery. He calls social activism wake work. And a professor of theology believes that religion remains a great resource for social transformation, despite the great harm perpetrated by organized religion over the centuries. But first, Ajamu Baraka, national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace, recently spoke at a webinar put together by the dissenters organization. The subject, how the new democratic administration is attempting to refurbish and strengthen the Euro-American world order under the leadership of U.S. imperialism. Basically, the state uh, using the so-called insurrection at the Capitol and the emergence of this traditional right-wing movement represented by the Trump forces, that the state is using that momentum, that reality, that political reality, in a way to, in fact, do the opposite of what we thought might happen with a Biden victory. And that is to, in fact, create the political space that would allow us to be able to organize and to advance our forces. In fact, what we're seeing from the state is a move to constrain and to constrict political analysis, alternative information, to impose on us an ideological conformity that, in fact, supports and sustains the neoliberal project. So our desire to uh, jettison this more traditional and stereotypical kind of of fascists represented by the authoritarianism of a cartoonish character of Donald Trump may be setting us up to not recognize uh, even more insidious and perhaps dangerous move being made by the state to usher in a form of neo-fascism that we inadvertently can support or will support by having our attention diverted away from that threat. And what I mean by that is this, that basically what we recognize and remember that neoliberalism is a form of fascism. Neoliberalism came in on the back of a fascist move in Chile. It is a rightist tendency. It is the terroristic coordination of society on behalf of big capital. It is a system that combines and converges capital, big capital, and the state. And as a consequence of that, it is threatened by any kind of upsurge from the people. So what we have to be very careful of is not recognizing that as a consequence of this capitalist crisis, and we have to understand that you can't understand neoliberalism 
and neo-fascism abstracted from capitalism. There's a consequence of this capitalist crisis that the state is moving to address its legitimation crisis by strengthening the national security state. So this space that we thought we might have, I think is, is under threat. And therefore we have to be absolutely clear about how we move, absolutely clear about our relationship to the state, our understanding of the state, our understanding of the social and class forces that are supporting the neoliberal Democrats. Because what we can find ourselves inadvertently doing is in fact giving political cover to this move by neoliberal fascism at this critical moment. So, you know, the analysis is something we have to continue to, to grapple with. We have to talk about the kinds and forms of organizations that we have to begin to build uh, to address this critical moment because the objective reality is this. The contradictions of this colonial capitalist order will continue to deepen. The redundancy that African people, the African working class and other people of color, the other colonized people in this country face will continue to deepen. The fiscal crisis that this state is facing will result in severe suffering on the parts of millions of people here in this country and globally. So we have to be prepared for this kind of struggle that we have to engage in, and we have to continue these kinds of conversations to talk about the kinds of organized resistance we have to engage in. And we have to remind ourselves too that the key beyond organization, of course, the key is effectively engaging in the struggle over ideas, to understand that the terrain of consciousness is a contested terrain, and that we've got to understand the challenges of the ideological struggle that we are involved in, because the state understands that, and they are uh, putting in, into place mechanisms to ensure that the only acceptable views and ideals that will be allowed to be disseminated are those ideals that uphold capitalist state and the settler colonial project. You could talk a little bit about how you see the connection between wars waged on Black communities within the U.S. via policing is one way, but the wars that get waged on Black communities within the U.S. to wars that the U.S. wages abroad. Just what is the connection there? How are we understanding the function of, of these two things um, in relation to one another? Thank you. I think that what, we are, what we've been talking about this evening is all those connections. What we're talking about is the structural manifestation, the political expression of the white supremacist, colonial, capitalist patriarchy that developed once Europe spilled out of its boundaries in 1492 and invaded the Americas, creating the material basis for its eventual global hegemony. What we are seeing today, as Joe Biden talks about the need for, for unity and reestablishing relationships between the U.S. and Europe is his attempt to rehabilitate or revive, if you will, some of the relationships that were not severed, but under pressure as the Trump forces 
advance their America First project that uh, exposed the tensions and contradictions between the uh, U.S.-based capitalists and the global, uh, the transnational finance and corporate capital. That project that uh, Joe Biden is attempting to revive is a project of white supremacy. It is a project that says that the only way that the pan-European project will survive is if we, are, we find a way to, to work together again, to re-embrace uh, the concept that Kwame Nkrumah uh, talked about, uh, collective imperialism under the, the leadership of the U.S., that's why they say that Joe Biden is a transatlanticist. But we have to unpack that and expose it. We have to see, we have to, we have to identify for what it is. It is a white supremacist project. And that's why this, this notion of white supremacy is so fundamentally important. And I'm not talking about the cartoonish understanding of white supremacy that the, you know, the, the, the clownish activities of some of these militias, as dangerous as they might be, that correspond to our sort of simplistic understanding of what a racist is supposed to be. I'm talking about the uh, more sophisticated white supremacy, the white supremacist ideology that sees Europe as the apex of civilization, that sees European culture as the most developed culture of the globe, and that sees something that we refer to as modernization, as the uh, inevitable ending point of all people and that all nations and all people should strive to to mimic and try to be like Europe okay those notions of white supremacy that white supremacist ideology is something that is not reducible to race or ethnicity gender or anything else okay that's why we say that Barack Obama is a white supremacist that's why we say that the Democratic Party is a white supremacist party. So the attempt by Joe Biden is to rehabilitate that project. And at the center of that project, this is what we have to remind ourselves, the center of this white supremacist colonial capitalist project, the mechanism by which it enforces itself and maintains its hegemony is state violence. The embracing of this white supremacist structure called NATO, the enhancement of the U.S. ability to wage war with these obscene military budgets, the creation of the Department of Defense 1033 program domestically, that is the program responsible for militarizing police forces across this country, the Israeli training of police forces. All of these are the structural expressions of this commitment to maintaining white supremacy through force. We've got to understand that and recognize that. Understand that war is being waged against us in this country and globally, not just against African people, but against all colonized people. When we understand the terms of struggle, and then the strategies become, become more clear. So we in the Black Alliance of Peace, we try to be clear you know, we say basically, you know, we came together and launched this thing in, in 2017. We understood the trajectory of, of U.S. politics. We understood that the crisis of legitimacy was only going to continue to deepen. And we knew that as a consequence of that, the state would be more 
depended on the use of force and violence. And we had to prepare our people for that. So this move by Joe Biden is a move to reestablish white supremacy, but in a more acceptable form. We've got to unpack it. We've had to have to expose it. Look, both parties, both parties are committed to the idea of full spectrum dominance. At the center of full spectrum dominance is militarism. Okay. So the war being waged against African people and colonized people in, in this country, in the U.S. domestically, is part of the global process of attempting to try to maintain a global white supremacist uh, imperialism. Uh, and that is the connection that we have to continually make. Most people don't even know, for example, how the U.S. has divided up the entire planet into these global command structures, the arrogance of these people. And one of the main command structures that we've been attempting to highlight in the Black Alliance of Peace's work is the U.S. Africa Command, a command that, that was created uh, October 1st, 2008, right before the ascendancy of, of your first Black president, and expanded under that person 2,400%. The footprint on the African continent is massive. 53 out of the 54 states on the African continent have military relations in military to military relation with the U.S. The U.S. is training police forces across the African continent. And these are some of the same kinds of Comprador and neoliberal puppets that are fronting for white power on the continent that we have in the U.S. The same kind of neoliberal Comprador puppets front of a white power across the country in all of these Democrat-controlled cities, okay? So we make those connections politically, and we make those connections in terms of the role of the state. So these are the things we have to make, and we have to articulate these things in clear, unambiguous uh, language. And that's why I'm so happy about this conversation tonight, because folks are laying it out in clear terms. And this is exactly what we have to do. We, look, time out for any kind of, of vagueness. You know, our people can understand, will understand what we're up against. They'll understand what capitalism is. They will understand what is imperialism. They'll understand what is colonialism. But we've got to be prepared with the language and the vocabulary and the skills to engage our folks. Okay, but that is the historic responsibility right now, folks. If we're not talking about building a revolutionary response, a revolutionary movement here in this country, that basically we just uh, propping up upholding white supremacy. That's the connection. Someone wrote, how and to what extent are the political structures and mechanisms of government on this land actually dependent on imperialist domination and extraction globally? Where could we learn more about this relationship? And, and the second part of the question is, does dismantling of US empire mean dismantling of the US? And where could we learn about this further? So if, if one of the panelists wants to um, maybe just, just clarify and respond to that question. I would jump in real quick and say that basically the, the relationship between the US, the settler colonial state, and the expansion of its power across the territory that came, came to be known as the US, 
provided the material basis for what we see as the U.S. state. That relationship was then enhanced as the U.S. state expanded beyond the borders of its conquered territories and was in competition with the other uh, European empires globally. And that competition, of course, uh, ended up being centered on places like, for example, the Af- Africa that led to the Berlin Conference where they tried to try to uh, uh, mediate uh, and mitigate the tensions between them. Uh, it eventually led to the first imperialist war uh, and then eventually the second imperialist war. So violence is at the center of this project. Super exploitation is at the center of it. And that's why this conversation is so incredibly important because people are, are laying out and making the connections between the material basis of U.S. policies. That is not just about uh, some bad people uh, in Congress, that maybe we can change their minds, but it's about an understanding that these folks have objective interests and that they are attempting to make policy to advance their interests. Biden wants to maintain the hegemony of U.S. capital. He wants to be able to make uh, U.S. capital uh, more effective. He wants to uh, reposition U.S. capitalists to be able to more effectively uh, exploit the land, resources, and labor of people globally. The creation of the West is as a consequence of colonial exploitation. So yes, those connections we make, and when we begin to shift power from this rapacious class, this greedy, rapacious class, the rapacious greed of this, these, these freaks, uh, it will end up being the dismantlement of the U.S. colonial state and, in fact, the West. You can't have it both ways. There's no way that we're going to be able to, re- this, we're not going to reform this, especially when we talk about and understand this basis, that basically we're not prepared for authentic decolonization, which means completely revamping this state, taking power away from these corporate capitalists and bringing that power to the people, then uh, you're not really prepared for, uh, for liberation. But that's the only way that we're able to free ourselves and in fact, free the world. Well, just real quick, a concrete example of how white supremacy is normalized. The very fact that people in the U.S. can support the notion that the U.S. state has a right and a responsibility to determine the leadership of other nations like Venezuela is, a, to me, a concrete manifestation of that ideology. You know, the same argument that they made concern about um, Russian interference and all of that, you know, they don't understand that basically there's a connection between that and their so-called concern and their attempt to assert themselves on nations like Venezuela. And the, the logic that one can can use that they uh, asserted around Donald Trump could have been used again when Donald Trump contested the election. And if another country like the Russians or whoever decided that they were going to recognize Donald Trump as the le- legitimate president, then the, the rationale was consistent. It's the same thing that they have done in Venezuela and other places. But the fact that this, these things are not connected and that people don't seem to even recognize it, to me, is a concrete manifestation of the assumptions 
of white uh, privilege uh, and white supremacy. What do you see as some winning strategies for weakening U.S. empire and for growing our movement to resist? Um, and if folks want to speak on just any ways that, that folks can be taking action in this moment. Well, I, I see in the, in the chat some people saying join an organization, and I think that is, in fact, key. I'm so grateful to dissenters for pulling this uh, panel together and for the work that they have embraced. It's so incredibly important to see folks who, who understand the um, absolute necessity for us to bring back into the center of discourse the issue of, of imperialism and to encourage people to embrace an anti-imperialist uh, position. It is a, a major contradiction in this country for people to be able to identify themselves as so-called radicals, but yet never say a mumbling word about U.S. Uh, imperialism. So that's one thing that we have to do, that we have a responsibility, I believe, being at the center of empire to, in fact, be in solidarity with the struggling people around the globe, understanding that in that kind of, of solidarity, it only strengthens all of us, that we're not going to be able to address the contradictions we're facing in the U.S. without understanding that we're part of one global system and that we've got to be in solidarity with all people who are struggling against our common enemy. And we share a common vision in terms of where we need to go as collective humanity. So we say in the Black is Back Coalition and the Black Alliance for Peace, uh, that we must turn imperialist wars into wars against imperialism. And the only way we do that, my friends, is by organizing ourselves and doing the deep base building work that we've been suggesting and implying here this evening. So support and join dissenters. Uh, support and join the Black Alliance for Peace get into organizations, take up the task of engaging our people in political dialogue, communicate the responsibility that we all have to be organized, but also help everyone to understand that organized, conscious, it may be a cliche, but the people are undefeated. And that sense of, of inspiration, that sense of our, our task, uh, is something we've got to talk about. Uh, we've got to center that and tell people that the degradation and dehumanization that we are subjected to in this backward and barbaric system, it can't be altered, can't be eliminated, that there is, in fact, a difference, that we can transcend this. So let's inspire each other, support each other, uh, and let's communicate to, uh, to the people uh, that, in fact, you know, we we can win. That was Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. Dr. Corey Miles teaches sociology and anthropology at Morgan State University in Baltimore. He says today's Black U.S. population is living in the wake of centuries of slavery and that the work activists are doing now should be called wake work. Wake is not the same as woke. But Professor Miles says both concepts can be understood through hip-hop. My book project is theorizing the South 
as a both a geographic and a carceral space. And I think about how racialized emotions become implicated within this process where then I'm thinking about if the South is a carceral space, then I'm calling for abolition. And I'm thinking about then abolition as this emotional process where trying to see how we can forge emotional belonging to a space that surveils, polices us, and that's the structural function of that space. And this particular project, um, Living in the Wake Through Hip Hop, then was born from that larger project where I'm trying to think about how do black people survive, make meaning, make love day to day, living in the wake of black death, living in the wake of black people being caged. And so I'm thinking then about wake work in the context of hip hop, the ways in which hip hop has allowed us to live in different ways. And particularly the genesis for this was when I lost my mother when she was 52 years old. And for me, I leaned on hip hop songs uh, and not necessarily sad songs, but songs Right, that engage with the normal hip hop tropes, so songs about dance, about pleasure, about love, about guns and violence. And I noticed for myself, these songs were doing a particular type of aspect of work. And then so I then began to theorize hip hop in the context of Christina Sharp, where is hip hop providing a particular type of care? Is hip hop providing a particular type of beauty? And terms we don't usually use when we're talking about songs about guns and violence. And then so I point then to the life of Nipsey Hussle, then I trace the ways in which I believe that hip-hop artists in the wake of his death both named them, cared for them, and loved them in ways that mainstream institutions don't allow for. You say that hip-hop has the power to develop wake consciousness. And I still want you to explain what wake consciousness is. So, so in the context of Nipsey in the writing, where for me, I'm thinking about wake consciousness as a way in which then Black people come to understand ourselves collectively in the wake of Black death. So we can think about when America was forced to watch George Floyd murdered and it's a way in which to think about how black people, we collectively felt something, even though most of us didn't know him personally. And so for me, thinking about then weight consciousness in the context of hip hop, is me pointing to when artists name their struggles with losing loved ones prematurely, when artists name their own particular struggles, and then we get these emotional responses to these songs, we understand those songs, not as just about that particular artist, but we can see our own precarious position within these songs. And so in many ways, then, these songs allow us to understand our own lives in more nuanced ways because we're all, we're thinking about Black folks listening to Black artists, where we're all been structurally positioned as Black as such, and we then develop new ways in which to read our own positioning through these songs. And then, so for me, I'm thinking about then weight consciousness as a way in which then to see ourselves through the other, a way in which then to understand this song in a more nuanced way 
because I understand the precariousness of being a person, being a being, being a body that wasn't supposed to survive the past. And I have a more nuanced aspect of relationship to these songs, given um, my current structural positioning. You speak of Black folks, all Black folks, living in the wake of slavery. And certainly we can draw a straight line between the objective contemporary Black condition and slavery. But a part of Black society has spent much of the succeeding generations since slavery trying to erase all vestiges of the slave, as if that past is a, a burden or even a shame on the race. And yeah, and so I think different people have different relationships, different understandings, different readings about what liberation, what freedom is. And for me in my work, I'm trying to, at least I'll be more on the side with reckoning with, engaging with, and thinking through that to be enslaved, that categorical label doesn't speak to Black interiority or speak to who Black people were intrinsically, but it speaks to the conditions in which they were forced to contend. And so for me, I tried to name the past as what it was to get a better understanding then of what we went through to get where we are now. And so for me, and this is just me personally, where where I feel, and I'm thinking particularly now in the African-American context, where a difficult piece of being Black contemporary is dealing with the unknowable, where some pieces of history that we just won't be able to know. And rather than constructing a beautiful amazing past and not want to hold on to the messiness, the unknowable, or the difficult pieces of it. For me, I'm trying to develop a framework in which to understand and better name that past and possibly see the beauty in, even in the most monstrous conditions. Try to think about the ways in which even with the label slaves, how black folks did some pretty remarkable, amazing things, and some survived, some didn't. But for me, I'm attempting then to develop a language in which to understand the beauty that was made in those conditions rather than try to sidestep or ignore those conditions. And then also, it forces us then to think about in what ways have those conditions be remixed, been remixed, reconfigured, to structure what we go through today. And so for me, as, a, as an interdisciplinary scholar, sociology and a Black Studies scholar, I think about structures and institutions a lot to not think about how monstrous slavery was. In many ways, blinds us to understanding how contemporary structures right, are built on the backs of those institutions and where maybe history isn't yet history. And then so for me to reckon with and to contend with what we engage today, it has to be an honest naming of what Black folks engage with in the past and not this attempt to beautify it, but an attempt to develop methods in which we, we better understand it and we can name it more accurately. 
You use hip-hop a lot in your work, but you also say, or some of the people you cite say, that Beyonce is performing weak work. Yeah, and, and so for me, hip-hop becomes the frame in which to chart a larger process. And then so for me, I'm thinking about the ways in which Black people orient their bodies to the world in ways that allow them to escape the predetermined ways in which we are forced to move. And so Beyonce then becomes, in many ways, a polarizing figure where everyone knows Beyonce, everyone has an opinion about Beyonce, good or bad. And so for me, then thinking in conversation with Beyonce, we can, in many ways, definitely think about her performances as weight work, where where if we're pulling in the gender piece where living in the aftermath of slavery is also a, a gendered experience, a class experience. And Beyonce then, for me, has allowed me then to think through the ways in which Black women in particular then, when they're living in, in the wake, and living in community with Black folks, in what ways then has hip-hop not only been a fantastic place, so a space in which to perform Black being in ways that we haven't conceptualized before, but in many ways, hip-hop then has reproduced some of the violences from the past. And so for me, Beyonce then becomes a frame in which to think about these gender negotiations, where so some folks will say, well, Beyonce doesn't do the feminist work we anticipate. Others may say she does. But for me, it's really thinking about then in what ways then have Black women used hip-hop to both situate themselves within American society, but also to refashion their position within Black community. And then so in my book project, I look at Southern Black trap artists and I document then the differences in the way in which Southern Black women perform trap music in comparison to the Southern Black men. And then so what we see then is the poetic styles, the, the texture of their songs often read differently, where Black women would use gender double entendres to articulate both gendered meaning, but also to stay in line with the structural contours of trap music to focus on guns and drugs. And so an example could be an artist I work with named Ivy. One of her lines goes, people be thinking I'm weak because I'm always in the kitchen, but I'm never cooking beef. And then so on one hand, she says I'm always in the kitchen. It's alluding to this cooking crack cocaine right, part of the trap genre, but she's also alluding to how people think I'm soft because I'm a woman and they think I'm supposed to be in the kitchen. And so for me, thinking about Black women artists, thinking about Beyonce, it becomes a space to really sit in contradiction. Well, hip-hop becomes a space, a frame to think about how oftentimes we sit in contradiction, how the genre itself can do this fantastic work but also hip-hop then becomes implicated within the structures of oppression that we're using it both to contend with. And, and for me as a hip-hop scholar, as a sociologist, as a Black studies scholar, it's thinking then about how in many ways 
within the wake how black folks have been criminalized and what came along or a side effect or a consequence of black people themselves being criminalized is that black cultural production has also been criminalized. And then so in part of my work, we're focusing on trap music, focusing on hip hop as a form of wake work, is then trying to develop a new frame in which to understand hip hop beyond the carceral readings that society prescribes for us. And so a lot of my work is focused on trap music, music centered on guns and drugs. And so I try to develop then a framework in which then for us to more accurately understand trap music. And so I'm thinking then about trap music as a structural template. So the same way we can think about a horror film or horror as a structural template for film, where I think about trap music in the same vein where the lyrics centered on guns and drugs aren't inherently the context or the purpose of the song, but that's the structural genre in which they're working through. And then so I'm thinking then about a more nuanced reading of trap music. And then so for me, I think about three frames where engaging hip hop, particularly trap music, I think about the text, the texture and the context of the song. And then so in trap music, the text of the song would be the line that alludes to drug lore, goods. But then the texture of trap music can vary from song to song to artist to artist. And the texture in the music can be based on the beat, the ad libs, the dynamics, the harmonizing, and just all these other pieces that artists build on to make the song. And this texture is what gives us that affective piece. And also thinking about the context of songs where who's producing it under what conditions in what region in the country. And then so for me, thinking about these three interconnectedly gives us a more accurate reading of trap music. And so song, some songs then may just be about guns and drugs and violence. But others may use that template to articulate different sentiment. And then more broadly, I try then to think through the ways in which if we can read then trap music in a different way, in what ways then can that same frame be used to understand the Black experience? And so I think about then Southern Black people, since that's who I work with, where taking that same model, this idea of text, texture, and context, where if we look at text in context of Black people in the South, Black people have a legal claim to the South because we have birth certificates, we have apartment leases, where these are texts that stakes out claim to the South and the U.S. So if we look at the texture of the experience through my work in the South, Black people feel anxious, they're, they're nervous, they feel vulnerable. The context, Black folks are surveilled, Black folks are policed, and in many ways, then, black people have right, a legal claim because of these texts we have to the South. But we face ontological exclusion through the context and the texture of our experience. And so for me, then, I'm trying to think ways in which, then, does black performance in ways, how can it serve, then, as a frame to which to name the black condition in ways that we haven't thought through before? In what ways? the centering 
black people from the hood can serve as a template then to think through some of the most pressing issues that black people face in contemporary America. And so all that just to say where, for me, hip hop then becomes a framework, but it's really me thinking through the conditions in which black people face and the ways in which we lean on our creative pieces, our beauty, or it's me thinking through how we leaned on creative processes, beauty, and our imagination as ways in which to chart a path and avenue for survival. That was Dr. Corey Miles, speaking from Morgan State University in Baltimore. Dr. Vincent Lloyd, a professor of theology and Africana studies at Villanova University, says a progressive liberationist theology can be useful to the movements against both police repression and U.S. imperial wars. However, Dr. Lloyd acknowledges that Christianity is a two-edged sword. Jesus is often called the Prince of Peace, but hundreds of millions have been killed or enslaved in the name of Christianity. Yes, so certainly there is a deep ambivalence in the Christian tradition, as in other religious traditions, about the relationship between faith and violence. On the one hand, we all know about crusades and other times when religious leaders have been calling on their followers to commit violence or to go to war on behalf of their faith. But on the other hand, we also think of Christianity and Jesus as a religion of peace, as having love at the center of the message. And this is an ambivalence that continues to play itself out today and has played itself out in America over the last few decades. And from a a political perspective, I I think when we're engaging with religious traditions, it's important to recognize this ambivalence. I think too often political folks and activists look at religious traditions and say they're all about homophobia or they're all about violence or they're all about capitalism, when in fact there are these mixed motives, mixed actors involved and some real resources there as well for activist groups. So one of the things that that I've been thinking about with colleagues is the way that Christianity has resources within it to think about prison abolition and police abolition, to complexity and resources for imagining otherwise in the conversations we're starting to have about police abolition these days. Well, certainly the military is not ambivalent about war and religion. Uh, Every military unit has a chaplain who blesses those who go to war, and many implicitly bless war itself. And there's a whole cadre of Christian ministers who routinely bless the police and their mission. Yes, yeah. And on the other hand, the military also manages religion, right? They, They choose who qualifies to be a chaplain. And it's not every minister or religious leader who is able to, is allowed to do that work. There's a specific set of religious leaders who are willing to shape themselves and their message into a way that's friendly to the forces of power and of capital. And similarly with police, right, there are certainly strands of Christianity and other religions where particularly leaders see an advantage to aligning themselves with the forces of power, but there are also liberative strands uh, within Christianity, as well as strands that are just providing resources for thinking about how to live together and and deal with harm 
in ways that don't resort to violence and more harm and compounding harm. For example, thinking about formation, you know, ethical formation, moral formation as a process that happens in community, a process that happens in family and place at a really local level, process that doesn't necessarily require uh, punishment or violence or new harm in order to make good people. Those sorts of practices of formation are religious traditions have rich, rich wells of resources to help think about that, even as those resources are themselves problematic, right? We always have to be critical, uh, even when there are resources of how, how those resources can go wrong. But I, I don't think we should shut ourselves off from any resources that, that we can use to address these really pressing problems of uh, police violence and anti-black violence. As you point out in your article, there's long been a discussion about just and unjust wars, is there a corresponding debate about just and unjust policing? There is. There's a debate that has been growing about what just policing means and what kind of rules philosophers or theorists or theologians can come up with to define what just policing is. But I think it's really important to think backward to this moment when just war theory became a thing that people would talk about and why that came about, right? It was in a moment after the Vietnam War when American intellectuals were feeling guilty about not doing enough to oppose the Vietnam War, even as they had been speaking out, or that they wanted to come up with a system of rules to prevent a war like Vietnam from happening again. But these people coming up with the theory were doing it from a position of privilege and of power and were really constructing something that had an ambivalent potential, right? It was supposed to block things like the Vietnam War, but it could also condone things like the Gulf War if it were mobilized by forces who, you know, wanted to go on imperialist adventures around the world. Those just war ideas were also, in, in some moments, mobilized by anti-colonial forces to say that colonization uh, and the, the worst colonization are unjust wars. So it's an ambivalent body of doctrine, just war theory, and I think it, it gives us really uh, important lessons for thinking about just policing. Just war theory was um, intellectual refinement of movement energy. Right? There was social movement against the war and against imperialism and against capitalism that uh, was reduced to a set of principles for choosing which wars are worth fighting and how they can be fought. And now we're at another moment where there's a mass movement naming police violence and its interconnection with anti-black violence, its interconnection with capitalist violence, and the, the long histories of the entanglement between these. And we're at a moment where there's risk that theory of just policing come up, that nonprofit leaders or intellectuals come up with, could have the appearance of reflecting that movement energy, but in reality be castrating that movement energy, it could be containing it, could be making that movement energy palatable to the powers that be and, and constructing rules that actually can be used ambivalently, again, can be used by the police to justify or legitimate their practices, which continue to be violent and racist and in support of capitalist and imperialist. It's almost impossible to imagine a Black community movement that doesn't involve lots of preachers. Ministers are ubiquitous in black social movements, and some of them have aligned themselves with the police. In my hometown of Jersey City, for example, a number of black ministers put up police posters in their churches asking the congregation 
to report to the cops if they see certain teenagers on a corner that a judge ordered them to stay away from. That's preachers telling their congregations to rat out kids to the cops. Yes, yes. I agree with you that there are certainly religious leaders, and particularly uh, they're often the leaders rather than the lay people. They're often the men rather than the women who are in positions of power and who enjoy those positions of power too much, who are blinded by that power and who, who are aligning themselves with the interests of the world rather than what they're professing, which is uh, aligning themselves with a kind of justice beyond the world. And that it's something that needs to be condemned by not only by secular activists, but by people who are within religious communities themselves, right? Christians should be calling out right, fellow Christians who, in the name of their religion, in the name of their faith, are supporting violent police activity and the targeting of black communities by the police, and should be supporting the innovative practices that happen at the local level, particularly in lay communities rather than among the leadership where religious communities and, and Christian communities are taking practices and ideas from the Christian tradition about what it means to heal from harm, what it means to build community, what it means to form a soul in community. Right? These, these are all rich ideas that, when they're applied at the local level, can, can offer a, a counterpoint to the elite religious leaders who are actually false prophets aligned with the police. You write that there is a deep attachment in Christian culture to the necessity of policing. Well, why is that? Jesus didn't have any good experiences with the police in Jerusalem. The police, of course, were the Romans. Yes, it's a great point. And with a 2,000-year-old tradition like Christianity, uh, there's a tendency for the the radical ideas to become shifted over time into an alignment with the powers that be, right? A, a Christian, a Christians sometimes talk about a Constantinian Christianity when Christianity became aligned with the Roman Empire rather than being an insurgent force in opposition to imperialism and, and colonialism uh, in, in, in Palestine. But those within this 2,000-year Christian tradition, there are, as there are in, in all places and at all times and in all traditions, those who see themselves as little gods, right, who want to impose rules on others, who get pleasure from imposing rules and, and penalties and doing violence on others. And there are also those who stand in opposition, uh, prophetically in opposition to that kind of idolatry, right, who, who stand prophetically with those at the margins, from the margins, and know what it feels like to be the subject of police violence as Jesus was, as you're rightly pointing out there, and see the, the project of building community among those who are, who are marginalized, building alternative ways of imagining a, a future without police is, is a project that is invigorated by religious ideas and ways, ways of imagining that when we limit ourselves to secular reason, pragmatic calculation in a world that is so invested in the police, so invested in the prison, so invested in anti-black violence, when, when we limit ourselves to the pragmatic, it's really hard to get out of to imagine differently. And religious ideas and, and images and, and forms of feeling offer resources for, for that project of imagining differently when it's so, so hard in our world. We finally have a Black-led social movement uh, these days that's worthy of the name after a very, very long hiatus. Is there a Black liberation theology to go along with that movement? It's a great question, and there are certainly 
young black folks who see faith and spirituality as central to their identity. Sometimes they see themselves as Christians, sometimes not. Sometimes they see that spirituality is more expansive than or than Christianity or, or Christian mixed with other things. And I think that just as millennials and younger folks in our days are suspicious of institutions, many of these younger black activists are, who align themselves with a kind of spiritual activism are suspicious of churches, suspicious of institutionalized religion, but are still in the way that they engage with each other, with movement work, with creating political vision, are informed by their spiritual sensibilities, the kind of aspects of love and rage and commitment to family, the sense of magic or black girl magic, the, the spiritual vocabulary that ana- circulates around and animates uh, today's racial justice movement is one that I think is easy to overlook when we just hear people saying, oh, I'm suspicious of the church, I'm suspicious of Christianity, uh, you know, the preachers are all homophobic, right? All those things may get at a kind of truth. But it strikes me that there's a deeper truth, a kind of expansive spirituality is at the core of today's racial justice movement and really needs to be examined, critically examined, because sometimes it's going wrong, right? Sometimes that kind of spirituality can lead in bad political direction, and sometimes it can, can be really powerful and lead in good directions. But we need to talk about that in order to be able to analyze whether those directions are good or bad to critically engage with them. Central to the Christian tradition, at least, is a worry about people setting themselves up as gods, setting themselves up as lawmakers, as people who get to make the final decision about what's right and who gets punished. And, you know, that's something that within the Christian tradition, as with other religious traditions, you know, that role is one that shouldn't be in the world, that that should be outside of the world, should be revered, that role, rather than usurped. And another site of rich resources, I, I think, for, for movement building and movement organizing is a set of religious reflections on how we challenge domination, right? how we challenge those who are setting themselves up as gods. And that means calling out idolatry, calling out individuals who are taking more power than they're due, who are imagining themselves as perfect and worthy to dole out punishments. And these are resources that really ought to be tapped, just as the, the sort of community formation resources, the religious tradition, are also important to be tapped in our moment today. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.